0: Welcome everyone I'm glad you could be here today and I hope that your March madness is kind of settling down a little bit and we can get into more of April feel. We're continuing on in the book of Luke and I just want to say a special thank you to my brother Phil who covered for me last week and it was just great to sit and listen the word, to the Word of God being preached and it's just wonderful to have people here at CBC that can do that. Um, So, Phil, thank you for preaching the Word of God and just being faithful to what it says. And as we continue on in Luke 18 uh, this week, when we read God's Word, context is so critical. More and more I'm beginning to see that sometimes we misinterpret God's Word because we don't take into mind the context of the passage. We often pull it out of its context and just preach it as we see it, But context is always there, and these books are not written with chapters and verses, right? That came along in the 1400s, 1500s for our benefit, so we could find where that verse was. But that was much later. The inspiration of God's Word was when it was written as letters or as documents, as stories. And so it's important that we not divide it up too Tightly, but look at the context, so why do I say that? My sermon's entitled, Living in the Now but Not Yet. What in the world am I talking about? What does that mean? Going back into last week's chapter, chapter 17, Jesus, the Pharisees come to him and start asking about the kingdom, and Jesus says to them, he says, it's here. It's in your midst. What was, he, what was he saying? He was saying, here I am. I'm the king. You want to talk about a kingdom of God? I'm the king, and my kingdom has already begun. It's already here. But then he talks about the fact they can't see it, and there's going to be some frustration that you won't be able to tell. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is things have begun. The work of God has already started, Jesus is saying, but it might not look like it. The Romans are still in control. They're still telling us what to do. What we think of, what you might think of as the kingdom is not yet. There's a future aspect to the kingdom of God. And then Jesus in chapter 17 starts talking about his return. He talks about lightning. It'll be like lightning. It'll be sudden. And he starts giving these warnings about what to do when he returns. And so he puts his disciples then in a tension of they're in the kingdom, it's now, but yet there's so much more ahead that they won't realize even in their lifetime. And the same is true with us today. We live in tension between the now and the not yet. Let me give you a couple examples. We're told in Scripture we're to... Love the sinner, but we're to hate sin. There's a tension, isn't it? How do we do that? How do we do that well? That's a struggle and that's a tension because we know it's true. We know what sin is and we know how holy God is, but yet we're to love people. We're to reach people. We're not to push them away. That's the whole book of Luke. The gospel is for everyone, right? So there's a tension there. Our home is in heaven, we say that often, right? So we're kind of like aliens and strangers here, but yet we're told to invest our lives for the sake of the kingdom here. So we live in this tension of this isn't really my home, but yet in a sense it is, and I'm living here with my feet on the ground, right? Positionally we know that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's the book of Ephesians. Everything that has been promised will become true. Who we are in Christ, in the heavenlies, we're up there already positionally. But experientially, the real life is we're living down here. With life is difficult and it's hard, right? So there's that tension. We're going through the book of Titus. In fact, these verses were actually uh, quoted today, and we talked about them a little bit. Titus 2, verses 11 to 13, here's what it says. I think this gives us a good pattern for the now, not yet. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's the past. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, the here and now, right? While we wait, there's something future here, something better that's coming down the road, but we're waiting for it. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the grace of God has appeared. He came. He teaches us how by His grace, and that was brought up beautifully. Ron Felmesker mentioned this. You know, all of Scripture gives us these commands, but we need to understand all of those commands, we can't do them without the grace of God and the power of God in our lives, people. We need to know that. The grace of God has appeared, not only to save us, but to help us live saved. That's a powerful message. So we're learning now how to say no to things that are opposed to God's grace and God's holiness while we live in this world and we're looking ahead. It's a beautiful tension that we're in. So with that in mind, Jesus is gonna teach his disciples starting in verse one of of chapter 18. While you're waiting for the return, the parousia, that is that word, the second coming of Jesus Christ is appearing How are you to be living? And we're going to have two parables and an account that Jesus is going to teach us how to do that. So the first one is waiting for the kingdom, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18. Let's read that, and then we'll talk about this beautiful parable. Then Jesus said to his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Sounds like a wonderful sort of a guy, doesn't he? There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God, I don't care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. I just want to get her off my back. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, there's that context. The parousia, when he returns the second time, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on this earth when he comes a second time? So in verse one, Jesus gives us the reason for the parable. He wants us, he wants them, the disciples, he wants us to pray persistently. Don't give up while you're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke wrote his book probably somewhere around 65 A.D., give or take. There's debate, but approximately 20, 25, maybe as much as 30 years after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So there was a period of time that had elapsed between when Jesus had left this earth and when the book of Luke appeared, and Luke was writing his book to the disciples then. People of Jesus' day, and we see this throughout the New Testament, really believed that the, Jesus would return within their lifetime. They didn't think of it in terms of you know, 2,000 years down the road. They thought of it as a short time. So there was beginning even in Jesus, even in the time when Luke was writing this book, this thought that is he gonna return or not? There was this delay in their minds and they started to lose hope. They started to lose heart and they stopped praying And that's what Luke is addressing here, that delay that was going on there. And Jesus says, we're to continue praying until he returns. We're to always pray and not give up. First Thessalonians 517, pray without ceasing. One of the shortest verses, what does that mean? Always be in an attitude of prayer. It doesn't mean we always go around like this 24 seven, but always be in that attitude of prayer. It's the same thing. Now, here comes the judge, verses two and three. This judge, it describes two people in this parable. This judge, and again, this is another example of how Jesus took a negative character to teach a positive truth. I spoke a couple weeks back on the dishonest manager of the money who stole from his boss. And Jesus says, okay, in one aspect, I want you to be like that dishonest manager. So Jesus was so good at taking negative characters and teaching positive, truths. So he's gonna take a very negative character but teach something very positive through this. It says there was no fear of God or fear of what people thought with this judge. He only cared about himself. He only cared about political, personal, financial, social, his own agenda. Doesn't sound like a very good judge to have, right? And then... There was a widow, verse 3. You know, the Old Testament commanded all people, not just judges, to care for the helpless. Orphans, widows, the poor, those who were in need of any kind in the Old Testament throughout. The Jewish people were taught that you are to take care of them. Widows were among the most defenseless people in Hebrew society. They were often oppressed and taken advantage of. They didn't have their, this widow had no children, she had no husband to help take care of her. So she comes to this judge, and we don't have the whole situation of what was going on, but she needs help. She wants justice, not vengeance. She's just asking for fairness here. And her only option, she has no leverage. The only thing she can do is plea, plea for mercy from this judge. So there's the situation that Jesus is talking about. And then verses four to eight, so what happens? The judge at first just says, I'm too busy, I don't care, whatever. For a time he was not listening. But then finally it says he gives in. Again, not because he wants to at all, not because he even thought it was right or just. Why? Because the widow kept bugging him. Bothering is the NIV word for that. This idea kept um, has in it this idea of it wasn't just in the courtroom, it was 24-7. He would be in the marketplace maybe, and here would come the lady bugging him. You're like, really? He would be at home, and all of a sudden there would be a knock on the door. Here she is, asking again. She keeps bothering. The word bother there is a very interesting Greek word. It literally means to give a black eye or to, to uh, stun. It's kind of this idea of metaphor of a boxer, kind of wearing him down, punch, 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 till finally he's like, enough is enough. Or the idea maybe of giving him a black eye. Maybe he was starting to look bad in the community because he kept saying no to this poor widow. So maybe the idea there is he's getting a black eye, but it seems like he doesn't care what people thought. It already says that about him. But this whole idea, she's wearing him down in your note taker, I've heard this parable preached on and, and I want to make sure we're clear on what it really means because I think there's three, I put three misconceptions that are often kind of put out there. So the first one in your note taker, and up here, there they are. First one misconception is God is the judge, we are the widow. Yes and no. This is a parable of contrast. What Luke, what Jesus is doing, he's arguing from lesser to greater. But it's really a parable of contrast. In fact, unlike the judge, God is a caring. He's fair, he's just, he does care about people, he loves people. He is very much the opposite of the judge in this story. And we are not like this nameless widow, In fact, in verse 7, it says, we are God's chosen ones. We are God's chosen ones. That is a beautiful term that speaks to relationship, and it speaks to God's grace. We're going to see that term. You know, we saw that in Romans. We're chosen by him. It's this beautiful word that God loves us, and he drew us into relationship. So we're not the widow. This is not God, but the opposite being true. It's a contrast, and what Jesus is doing is showing by contrast from lesser to greater. If that unjust judge finally gives in, what is an amazing, loving, just God going to do? If he doesn't even know this widow, what is God going to do for us that he has chosen? We're chosen ones, right? So it's this beautiful contrast that's brought out. Second misconception, and this one is, um, unfortunately, it sometimes gets taught. If we're persistent in our prayers, we'll get what we want from God. Yes, but, that's my best way to, I think it misses the point. What I mean is this, God is not a vending machine. That, you know, we just keep, you know, as long as we put in the right change and push the right button, we're gonna get what we want. That's a very selfish way to look at this parable. That's not what Jesus wanted to teach by this parable. Yeah, it's true that there's persistence there, and yes, it's good to pray for things that we need and to bring them before the Lord, yes, but it's not about getting what we want. In fact, the persistence is for our sake more than it is for God's. The persistence is... Deepening our relationship with God, when we come to Him and just continue to pray, we grow in our relationship with Him. We grow in our faith and our trust of Him. God purges us in our prayers when we continue to pray. There's this beautiful thing that happens in our life. So misconception number two, hey, as long as we keep pestering God, we'll get what we want. No, that's not the point. It's more about relationship. Relationship and what God wants to do in our lives, then it is about getting what we want. Third misconception, we need to persist in prayer because God is reluctant, or maybe God doesn't pay attention to us. Again, this is a parable of very much contrast of who God is, yet we're not persistent in our prayer because God is reluctant by any means. He cares about us, he knows fully, and he knows what's best for us, right? Oftentimes we pray and we, know, we think we know what's best for us, but really God does. And God is not reluctant whatsoever. Charles Spurgeon had a great quote. You know, Charles Spurgeon was one of those guys, he started preaching, I think, when he was like 12 or 13, and how many times I've been reading and i come across some of these quotes, and I just wanted to read this one. Sometimes it does seem to us that God is reluctant to answer our prayers, yet... The delays in prayer are not needed to change God, but to change us. Persistence in prayer brings a transforming element into our lives. Romans 12, and 2, right, ladies? From last weekend at the retreat. That's what God is doing. Building into us the character of God himself. It's a way that God builds into us a heart that cares about the things that, the same way he does. Too many prayers are like this, Too many prayers are like boys runaway knocks, given, and then the giver is away before the door can be opened. Be persistent. But persistence is not about tugging and getting what I want. It's about being transformed to want the same thing that God wants in my life. It's about changing me. That's what prayer is really about. Be persistent. In verse 8, Jesus ties in this idea of his return. Look what he says in verse eight. I tell you, he will see that they get justice. These are, speaking of his disciples, his chosen ones, and quickly. It might not seem quickly, but it will be. It'll be in God's time, not maybe yours, but it's in God's time. It'll happen. However, when the Son of Man comes, as their parousia, then not yet. The future return of Jesus Christ to judge and to reward Will he find faith on this earth? Hmm. Question is, will he find believers who are persistent in their faith? Will he find believers remaining true to the faith or will he find disciples who have walked away from truth? Will he find disciples that have stopped praying? That's really what Jesus is getting at here. When he returns, what is gonna be happening on this earth? Why do we lose heart in prayer? Have you ever wondered about that? I think it different reasons. Maybe one is because Satan knows that this is serious business, so he's out to get us. We're under a spiritual attack. When we literally bring our requests to God and we pray seriously, there's going to be an enemy there. He hates it. So you have an enemy that's trying to defeat it. But sometimes, maybe in our minds, we're not always convinced of the power of prayer. I think sometimes we use prayer kind of as a last resort, a last resort rather than a first resource. you understand the difference? Instead of coming to God first and saying, this is what you've provided for us, prayer, we use it kind of as I've tried everything else, now it's a last resort. So be persistent in your faith. Then Jesus continues on with another parable and another account starting in verse nine. After addressing the issue of how to live while we wait, Okay, you're in this waiting period, the not yet, until the parousia. So he addresses that, We per, be persistent in your prayer, be persistent in your faith. Now Jesus addresses the issue of, okay, who's gonna be entering the kingdom? Who are the righteous and who are the unrighteous? Who are the ones that will be going in? Who are the ones that will be kept out? And he's already been talking about this a little bit, but he's gonna tell a parable here uh, to talk about who are the righteous and the unrighteous. I wanna read verses nine to 14. This is the next parable. This is an account found only in Luke. It's a beautiful story that Jesus tells. Here's what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Who's his audience? We'll get to that. So here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Is that a prayer? (laughs) But, here's the contrast, and it's beautiful. The tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow, there's a prayer, isn't it? I tell you that this man, referring to the tax collector, not the other one, not the Pharisee, I tell you this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. One requirement of those who enter the kingdom of God is going to be humble faith. And Jesus tells this parable to bring that truth out. So who was his audience here? Those who were confident in their own self and looked down on others. Who does that sound like in Jesus' time? Sounds a lot like a Pharisee. It doesn't say Pharisee there. It's an indirect reference. But interestingly enough, Jesus puts a Pharisee directly into the parable so he doesn't say it but there's a Pharisee in the parable interestingly enough so he is saying it confident in their own self-righteousness and they tended to look down on other people that's terrible but that's how they live that's how they looked at the world In a Pharisee's thinking, in their mind, the best performers were saved and rewarded in the kingdom of God. Well, those that underachieved didn't do all the right things. They were left out, and they were judged. So they had it all wrong, and Jesus wanted to make sure that they straightened it. I want you to notice the similarity between the two men in the temple and the two brothers in the prodigal son story back in Luke 15. They're the same. One is a sinner, but repentant. The other one working his tail off out there in the field and very proud of it and refuses to come in and celebrate. Luke does this. It's the same story, just in a different format. There's the two brothers. Both of them are praying in the temple, but that's kind of where the similarity ends, right? So let's look at the Pharisees' prayer. There's Three things about his prayer. Number one, it's a self-directed prayer. He starts off with God, but then there's five eyes Four or five, depending on translation. But, I mean, it's there. It's, it's just so clear. And he says, he stood by himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or I am not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I have. Five eyes. It's me, 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 me. I think God was only referenced to make it look good because he was in the court of the temple praying. So he had to reference God somehow, but that's kind of where it ended, isn't it? It was about lifting himself up. He rejoiced not for who God was, but for who he was. A very sad, there was nothing about worship here except for worship of self. It was also a prayer of comparison. So glad I'm not like them. And he lists out a few, and then he points to this tax collector, especially him. He's the lowest of the low, right? In their culture, that was. When we understand God's grace, we look on others with compassion and we focus on our sin. When we think that we're good to go without God's grace, we're gonna look on others with contempt and focus on their sin. You get the difference? When I see God's grace and I understand who I am in relationship to him, I'm gonna view others with compassion because I see their need of a savior. And I'm gonna see the sin that I have that I need to deal with in my life. But if I think that it's because of me and all the good that I'm doing, and I earned this anyway, I'm gonna look down my nose and I'm gonna look on others with contempt. And I'm gonna focus on their sin. Look at them, God, I'm glad I'm not like them. It was a prayer of comparison. It was also a prayer of personal accomplishment in verse 12. He lists two things that he was doing faithfully to please God, and these are good things. Fasting, tithing. Nothing wrong with either, right? But why was he doing them? That's the problem. He says, I fast twice a week. In the Old Testament, the only requirement for fasting was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year. That was the only required fasting. But people added on and that's fine, it was good. There were times where they wanted to fast and get closer to God in prayer. Many Jews in Jesus' day fasted on the second and fifth day of the week. Monday, Thursday, why? Because when Moses went up to receive the law on Mount Sinai, he went up on the fifth day of the week and he returned from the mountain down on the second day. So they chose those two days to fast good it's a reminder of the law of God but Pharisees took it a step further and we also know in those days these two days were market days in Jerusalem where there would be a crowd of people people would be there for the market and there was a chance to show their fasting what would they do Jesus spoke of this they would just get up all messed up looking like they were fasting And they went around so people would recognize and go, oh, you don't look so good today. Your clothes are a mess, your face is a mess. Why? Well, I'm fasting. It was all about getting credit, right? It had nothing to do with God. So this idea of fasting, it sounds spiritual and it's a good thing to do, but it was for the wrong reasons. And then he brings up another one. He says, I give a tenth of all that I have. I tithe. That's what tenth means, right? of all I have. Now, in that culture, you tithe on your income. But what he's saying is, I not only tithe on my income, what I receive, I tithe on all that I have. Everything that I get, I tithe a tenth. There's a little bit of extra credit here, right? I'm going up and above the requirements of the law. Look at me. It was this whole idea. Now, this, off, this idea of tithing, it's a good principle. 10%, giving 10% to the Lord is beautiful. But really, as Christians, our principle of giving is not so much the amount that we give, it's the heart, the attitude, the motive. That's what the New Testament speaks of when we give. It's not, 10% is a good principle and a good guideline, the tithe idea. But we're to give of everything, as, thankfully, and gratefully to the Lord as he blesses us. That's the principle. It's our heart. It's not about amount and getting caught up in that. The tax collector, different story. I mean, you could not be a greater contrast. Look what it says. There's actions of humility in verse 13. Stood at a distance. Last week in chapter 17, the 10 lepers came to Jesus wanting to be healed. What did they do? They didn't walk right up to Jesus. They stood at a distance, it says. Why? Because they realized we're not worthy to be close to the master. We're unclean. We're going to stand back at a distance. And this is what he was doing. Most likely along the outer perimeter of the court of Israel. In the temple there were different courts. There were a court of the Gentiles where Gentiles and women were allowed. And then the next step closer was if you were a Jewish male you got a little closer to God. That's the way it worked. So in this court of the Jews now, the Pharisee walks right up front, right? This guy is either in the very back or maybe along the outside. He stood at a distance. Um, The second one is he says he didn't even want to look up to heaven. He had a real sense of God's holiness and his sinfulness. I'm not worthy to even look up. The Pharisee was looking at himself. He wasn't looking at God either, okay? The tax collector just said, you know, I'm not even, I'm just gonna bow my head and say this short prayer and be done with this because I'm talking to a God that is holy and look at me, look at my life. He beat his breast, what is going on with that? I just In the commentaries, I did some research on their culture, what that meant. The idea is that one is so aware of their sin and the corruption that's in their heart that they're hitting their heart as a punishment. They understand what's going on in here. There's a lot of sin and corruption going on here, and it's just this beating of his heart. So with his actions, he shows his humility. You know, the Pharisee thought he was better than the other guy, and the tax collector thought... He was worse. That's really the heart that's going on here. There were words of humility, and his prayer was pretty simple. It's a one sentence, a few words. It's simply this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Simple, humble, beautiful prayer. The Pharisee relied on his own power and deeds, the tax collector on the mercy and compassion of his God. Have mercy, that word, that Greek word there, literally means atoning sacrifice. It's used one other time in the New Testament, and that's Hebrews 2.17, and here's what Hebrews 2.17 says. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The idea of mercy there is atonement. Making atonement for the sins of his people. What the tax collector was saying is God, I need that. I need an atonement for my sins because that's who I am. I'm a sinner. And he just simply comes to God on that basis. There's a book that I, maybe I've referenced this one before, Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges, great author. I want to read this little account to you because I think it highlights this point of humility and sometimes as Christians we slide out of it a little bit. Let me read this to you. He's talking about sin and how in our culture we've kind of lost it. We don't talk a lot about it out there in the broad culture. But then he goes, but what about our conservative evangelical churches? Has the idea of sin all but disappeared from us also? Hmm. No, it has not disappeared, but it has, in many instances, been deferred to those outside our circles who commit flagrant sins such as abortion, homosexuality, murder, or the notorious white-collar crimes of high-level corporate executives. Them. We've just kind of passed it on and defected to them. It is easy for us to condemn those obvious sins Yeah, well, virtually ignoring our own sins of, and he lists them out, gossip, hmm, pride, envy, bitterness, lust, even our lack of those gracious qualities that Paul calls fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, the lack of those in our lives. Here's a great story. A pastor invited the men in his church to join him in a prayer meeting. Rather than praying about all the spiritual needs of the church as he expected, all of the men, without exception, they prayed about the sins of the culture, primarily abortion and homosexuality. Out there. Finally, the pastor, dismayed over the apparent self righteousness of the men, closed the prayer meeting with the well known prayer of the tax collector in Luke 18 13 God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There it is. It's them out there without understanding. It's me. God, work in my heart. Verse 14, I just called it the gospel. Look at it. It's beautiful. Here it is. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. There's that great Romans word. In the court of law with our judge, God, We are not guilty. We're justified. We are righteous in God's sight. Why? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. The justification of the tax collector was immediate. Why? Because he came to God humbly and just asked for mercy from his God. There it is. Didn't have to earn it. Didn't have to wait for it. It was immediate. He was right before God because of that. He simply called out. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. It's there. It's in the Old Testament. Here's what it is. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. No difference between Jew and Gentile. This righteousness, it's by faith. It's through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming to him and simply asking for his mercy. That's the gospel. The Pharisees saw prayer and good works as a way to be exalted. The tax collector approached God in humility on the basis of his mercy. You see the difference there? And so God does the great reversal. He does this many times. Jesus taught this. Those that want to exalt themselves, guess what? They're going to be humbled, and those that are humbled, guess what? God exalts them. There's this great reversal that happens. This idea that God resisting the proud, giving grace to the humble is so important to God that he repeated it three times in Scripture. It's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. It's in James 4. It's in 1 Peter 5. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There it is. So, having a humble spirit, approaching God in a humble, with a humble faith. And then, verses 15 to 17, we're to approach God with a childlike faith. Here's the story. So, he steps out of a parable and just draws from an event that was going on. Here's what it is. People were bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they got excited about it. This is great. Isn't this? No. They rebuked them, meaning the parents. But Jesus called the children to him, and he said, let the, please, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Whoa. That's totally opposite from what the disciples were thinking, isn't it? Jesus, it's a waste of time. Come on. We've got more important things to do here. No? No? This is who the kingdom of God belongs to. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Childlike faith, Jesus says. We not only approach God with a humble faith, but with a childlike faith. In that culture, it was common for mothers to bring their children to rabbis that had notoriety to get this prayer of blessing around their first birthday, About one year olds. They'd bring them to a rabbi. The idea was they would get blessed. And this is what was going on. Seems to reference this was an ongoing thing. The language is so there was probably this long line of moms and babies. And that's probably why the disciples maybe got a little exasperated. The disciples' response, rebuke. Jesus' response, welcome. Please do not hinder. In 1992, Billy Graham came to town, had his crusade down at the old Civic Stadium in those days. Many of you maybe were there or remember it, but during the afternoon on one of the days, they had a children's crusade, and Patty and Katie went, and she was with one or two ladies from CBC. I was somewhere else. I don't know what I was doing. Something... Probably driving a bus or something like that. But anyway, so this is going on, and they had the donut man, they had Sandy Patty um, sharing the gospel, and at the end, as they do in a crusade, there was the invitation to respond. Katie was four years old, and so the invitation, she was like, I'm gonna go. She was excited, and there was a hesitation with Patty. It's like, does she understand? Does she fully know what this means? Is she going down there just to meet the donut man? Because he's pretty cool. Or Sandy Patty, she's pretty cool. Does she just want to go down there to meet them? And Shelly Rowland was sitting next to Katie and Shelly said to Patty, "Let her go. go with her, let her go. And sometimes we do this with children. We worry about do they really understand? Are they really responding because they get a treat? like at VBS, or are they really responding to th- because they love Jesus? Is, you know? And it's important to do that, I understand, but Jesus would say, please, you can teach them, but let them respond. Let them come, don't hinder them. Don't put things in their path. Let them come, because the kingdom belongs to such as these. What is it about little children that Jesus would say something like that? Well, it's things like they're helpless, The moms had to bring these kids, right, to Jesus. They understood that. That's a picture of us. We're helpless. They were quick to trust and believe and to love. Children are that way, aren't they? They're quick to trust, and it's only later that we learn, well, uh, maybe I shouldn't trust that person. That happens, and there has to be some wisdom here. They don't worry about acceptability. They just appreciate being loved on. That's children, isn't it? It's not about what I can do or what I bring. That's a child. They know how to receive a gift. You know, if you don't believe that, just look at the Christmas tree on, you know, Christmas morning, man. I mean, the wrappings are going crazy. And sometimes as an adult, we receive a gift and we go, oh man, you know, you shouldn't have. Why? It's a gift, for goodness sakes. That's the whole idea. That's the gospel. It's offered. It's there. Take it. For goodness sake, you don't have to earn it. Just take it and love it and receive it. Tear into it. That's the way a child comes to God. As we wait for the return of Christ, we're in the now. It's hard. I don't know how many times I've thought, even in the last year, I wish Christ would just come. Just be done with this. Have you ever been there and done that? You look around, you see the pain, you see the mess. You see all the things that this world loves that are just totally opposite of what God loves, and you go, how much longer can this go? God, please, could you just come and just take us all out of this mess? And, but we're called to engage the mess. We're called to live as children of light in the, me- in the dark and the mess. So we're in the now, but man, we're looking ahead to that glorious hope that we have in the future. It's not yet. And all that means. So while we're waiting, we need to have a persistent faith, an attitude of prayer, constant prayer, pray without ceasing, Paul says. We need to have a humble faith, one that understands that I come to Christ on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of who I am and how good I am. And it's not about earning anything here. It's about loving him and living in obedience. My good works are done simply as a response to his grace. They're not done to make me look good or to earn favor in his eyes. That's not what it's about. There's a humbleness. There's a humble faith. And we need a childlike faith. We need to learn and look and see children, how they respond. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is open to them for such as these. These are model citizens right here, Jesus says, these children. We need to approach our faith with childlike faith, simply coming to Christ out of love for the Savior and what he's done for us.